Welcome to the Inspired Peak Performance Flowcast. Drop in as we dive deep into the epic moments of high performance from around the world, where we aim to unlock the valuable insights into their vision and the strategies applied in the pursuit of their own version of greatness. We'll discuss the experiences that led them there and what state they were in when they arrived. I'm your host, Paul Price, and this is The Flowcast. Today's episode of The Flowcast features one of the most passionate, impactful, and successful coaches in the world, Mike Way. Mike Way is currently the head coach of the men's and women's squash team at Harvard University. Mike has held this prestigious role for 10 years and has led his players in achieving some incredible results. Most recently, with the Crimson completing its fifth straight undefeated season en route to its sixth consecutive national championship trophy. And on top of that, improving its CSA winning streak record to an outstanding 83 matches. Prior to his coaching journey at Harvard, Mike was based in Toronto where he headed up the National Squash Program, where he also coached former world champion Jonathan Power and other Canadian greats in Graham Riding, Shahir Razik, Marnie Riding, Melanie Jans, and many more. His influence on the sport goes deeper than the results produced by his players. The influence he has had on athletes off the court is also prevalent and arguably his most impressive part of the ongoing legacy he is creating. Mike is an avid kiteboarder and guitarist and is always on the hunt to learn more and more. He personally has had a major impact on my life and never fails to leave you better than when he found you in all interactions. This episode has been broken into two parts and is extremely insightful. I'm sure no matter what your background is, the lessons in these two episodes will add a lot of impact to your life. If you do gain some value out of the episode, it will go a long way in helping us reach more people by leaving us a review on your preferred podcast provider. If you'd like to know more about Flow, please subscribe to our website, inspiredpeakperformance.com, where we will have some exciting announcements coming up about our Flow programs for coaches and leaders in high-stressful environments, not to mention our Athlete Flow program. Now here we go with the legend himself, Mike Way. Mike Way in Boston, how are you, mate? I'm doing good, thank you very much in this uh, in this COVID lockdown time. But we're in our little bubble, so uh, safe and sound, and uh, very fortunate. Yeah, awesome. Great to hear that um, that all is well in Boston for you and. Uh, you keep it safe and healthy. Um, I have been really looking forward to this conversation for a long time, as I do with every conversation I get to have with you, Mike. Um, your uh, your influence in the, the sporting world of squash, um, not just as a, a coach per se for for the for the development of players and things like that, but but the thing that's really um, impressed me the most with you is the way you develop players as people and the way you uh, really invest time into your players um, as, a, as a whole. You know, it's not just a, you're not just there to, to improve their performance, you're, you're there to improve their quality of life. Um, and that's something I think is really admirable and something I've always loved about you and enjoyed talking to you about. So, so yeah, but um, so currently you are the head coach of the Harvard squash team. And you've been there for how many years now? 
I've just been there, just turning 10 years. 10 years. 10 years, that's amazing. Has it flown by? I wasn't expecting to uh, get beyond my first contract, to be honest, which was which is the head coach is on a three-year contract. So I'm now in my uh, fourth contract, which uh, that in and of itself is, um, <clears throat> is quite amazing to myself. Yeah, that, that's phenomenal. Well, you must be doing something right down there because um, I know you've, got, you've built up a, a great program there and, and the track records kind of speaks for itself. But And I'm really keen to get, get into how you built it and your philosophy around what you've done there but um, but as you know, the, the this is called the Inspired Peak Performance Flowcast, and it's a conversation that we want to just flow and, and see where we end up. And but it's it's all about peak performance, peak experiences in life, and those moments of rapt attention where things just sort of really uh, make you feel your best and perform your best. And so so I'm curious to know um, the moments for Mike Way where you felt your best, performed your best. You know, what have been your peak experiences in life as a coach and as a, as a person in general? So the, the best days professionally is when you can just feel the energy in the program and the cylinders are just firing. All cylinders are firing as you would like them to be. And, and so, so, so the players have come down, the students have come down and you can just feel that they want to be there. They're engaged. Um, and, and, and there's this undeniable synergy um, in the air. And it's like, OK, I've, I've got the baby exactly where I want it. Don't mess with this um, when it's unfolding. And it's just that level of engagement, which I think for me as a coach comes down to buy in. <clears throat> So right now I'm working with the first years. Um, we've got first years only on campus because of COVID. Um, and we don't have all of them. A couple of internationals are not here. So we've actually only got uh, five kids currently, but they are so bought in that even with just this very small group, the energy is undeniable. And the assistant coaches, Luke and Hamid, have got two great coaches with me. Uh, and, and we're all, the three of us are very aware of this. <clears throat> and it's a kind of a precious thing. It's, it's, it's something that yeah, you can take pride that you feel you're creating something, but it's really to do with the buy-in from the athletes. And when they buy in and they're engaged, and we've got lots of uh, limitations on us now, how we can practice, whether it's two on a court, one on a court. So we've got all these restrictions around us. But what we're feeling is this involvement from the individuals. And, and that for a coach, there is nothing better than that. It's not to do with the level of the player. <clears throat> it's not to do with working with a potential world champion or not. It's just to do with the fact that you've got an individual, they've got uh, a certain technique that needs work on or, or, or a fitness, mental, tactical, and they want to learn from you uh, and they're buying into how you present. And then, you, you know, you're, giving energy out and that's coming back. And of course, that's the, that's really the definition of, of a synergistic program, something greater than the sum of its parts. So those are the most satisfying moments for me. And of course, on the flip side, it can be highly frustrating on those days when that is not happening, but you accept that that's part of the package. It's a package deal. <clears throat> the deal is 
we can't hit this using your term flow. So I would say an energy flow um, in the coaching program, can't hit it all the time, but that is the goal. <clears throat> and so what are the components that go into that? Well, I will provide the energy, the coaches will provide the energy, we will provide the program. We hope there's some intelligence about it. We hope it speaks to the individual. And if there's buy-in, then we actually create something that's really quite exciting. Now with students, we got 30 student athletes, give or take. So as you can imagine, especially with young people, you know, what are the other factors that go into determining whether you're having such a day or a week? Well, you know, what time did you go to bed last night? <laughs> you know, did you, <laughs> have you got academic stress here, you know, at any university? Um, what's happening socially in your life? Um, so lots and lots of things. And of course, nutrition is right up there as well. But all these things go in there um, and probably none more so than their recent performances. So all right, someone's yeah. playing really well. Oh, I, I feel really good. And this energy comes out. <clears throat> so part of the program is to basically teach them what are their responsibilities beyond the obvious. And in an individual sport, it's very curious because the individual we play as a team, but the individual uh, athlete thinks, well, whatever I do only affects me. And of course, that isn't true. So it's, it's mm -hmm. obvious in a team environment, but in individual sport, your energy, you come down, we've got a training program going, your energy is affecting me, my energy is affecting you. So it takes time for these students when they first come in to learn what are their responsibilities are to the program, to me and the coaches, <clears throat> apart from it to Harvard, the alumni, the families themselves and everything, but, but they've actually got to buy in and learn what it means to be able to contribute on tough days. You remember mm -hmm. an old mutual friend of ours back in Toronto, one of my favorite people on the planet, Bob Bowers, <clears throat> Um, and Bob was our physical trainer up in Toronto with, you know, Jonathan Graham and Shahir and, uh, and the rest of them. And, uh, and he would call those guys that weren't, didn't have this level of awareness. He would call them energy thieves. Okay. And he would say, no, you can't, you can't steal from me. You can't steal. You can't, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So I know that was a bit of a long answer, but I wanted to sort of really describe what it means to me as a coach and to us as a program and really what we're trying um, to get our kids to buy in and then to immerse themselves um, in, in really what is such an exciting presence and not have them on those days where you know this mentality, <clears throat> I just wanna get through this. You can have them in training, I just wanna get through this. Well, no, not do I wanna get through this. I want you to want to be here. I want you to feel that you are experiencing this. I'm experiencing well, I love this. I right that, here. yeah. <laughs> sorry, so, so, long <laughs> Mike, when I ask a question, I'm expecting long answers. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, man. Um, so, so I love that, like, be here, be now, experience this, be in that present moment, um, along with the you know, the, the stresses that you bring to the table, the, 
the expectations, the intentions, the um, you know the peripheral um, stresses in life that, that you're going to come to the training session with. Yeah. So, so how important is it that to get this synergistic program really firing on all cylinders, as you say? How important is that to into to getting the buy-in for that to happen? To to really narrow it down to sort of clear goals, values, and kind of an attitude of how you want your players to show up. You know, like when they show up to be here and now and experience this, what is the found, foundational mindset behind that? Well, you actually took the words out of my mouth there because, you know, we look at our mental program as, as exactly that. We, we go through and we discuss um, the untrained mind. So they, they really, I want my guys to really understand, even though they got it from the inside, um, what's going on in an untrained mind. And of course, by describing it, I'm describing them at certain points. <clears throat> so we look, we, we can expand on this, I think we should do in a little while, but we go from there. So they understand what untrained mind is going on. And then we actually look to build a foundation. And this really starts, so, so there are two aspects to it. One I just mentioned, which is the buy-in. So does the, does the coach in the program offer something that speaks to me individually, to the athlete. So is the program intelligent? <clears throat> Does it have high awareness and so on? Okay. But from their responsibility, from that point that you were just asking about, it's really to do with these character components. So it's important for us to make a start and, and, and uh, with, but without, you've got to do it in such a way with young people um, whereby it's a drip, drip, drip. So it's little and often. So we're not going to do a 60 minute, you know, 60 minute Zoom right now. We're not going to do a 90 minute mental program. <clears throat> we're just going to drip it down the pipe so that they understand. And of course, they get it from the upperclassmen, from the captains and the third and fourth year students as to what, again, we go back to what are their responsibilities. What we lead them to with this foundation model. Before, so our three mindsets are foundation mindset, training mindset, and then performance mindset. And what we lead them towards is to having what we call a commitment switch. So at Harvard, this might sound kind of funny, but at Harvard, academic Harvard and athletic Harvard is separated by a river here in, yeah. uh, in Boston and Cambridge, and it's the Charles River. And I talk to my guys often when they hit the bridge to cross the river, I want them to start thinking certain things. And what we lead them to is to having this commitment switch and an awareness as to their responsibilities of the day. I actually like them to write a commitment switch. It might be one word, um, but, um, but it might Not be- Not while they're driving across that bridge. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and so I wanted to feel that. So, but I also tell them that I want you to look up the river. It happens to be in a beautiful part of Massachusetts. So yeah. when you see the Charles River, you look up the river and you see the rowers are out there, just like, you, you know, you would do say in Cambridge. And then you, you know, you look down the river and you might, you see the Harvard business school on one side and the, and the housing for the undergrads on the other, but there's something really beautiful and enjoyed by it. So you, first of all, you, you know, there's gotta be some gratitude there. So 
Let's feel some gratitude, let's feel some appreciation, whatever. I'm not saying that they're necessarily going to go down a long stroll in their mind to some mental state because that absolutely isn't going to happen. But what I do want them to have is this sense of responsibility to be accountable when they go across and say, okay, me, my team now. <clears throat> and to think about, to start to think about between the bridge and getting out of the changing room, what do you want out of the day? What is our program about? What is my individual and our, our collective responsibility to the coaches, <clears throat> to what we're doing? What are we here for? And of course, we're here to have some fun, but with a serious purpose. I mean, the serious purpose is to win, but really it's to, it's to immerse in the challenges of competitive sport, in the stress, immerse in the challenges of competitive sport, grow as an athlete, grow as a person. I tell them that we're gonna, I'm gonna put you under stress, but I'm not gonna abandon you. So we call it, actually we call it stress with answers or we call it guided stress. Yeah. So you've got a bit of gratitude. <clears throat> you've got a bit of appreciation. You're crossing the bridge. Okay. Because what I don't want is for the kid to turn up by the court. I like him to be happy, chatting, laughing, joking. Whoa. Hey, Jimmy, how you going? I want a few laughs. But what I don't want is for them to hit the courts with an attitude where they warm up mentally into the mindset that I want from the get-go. And the critical component here was different from pro athletes is that we have a limited time frame. We have a limited yeah. time frame because of the rules of the Ivy League, because of the rules of the NCAA that govern um, college athletics. But we also, it's the, it's the, the realistic, the, the, the academic pressures, they are and we, we refer them as student athletes. We don't regard them as athletic students. Student, so the student comes first and we have to work around this academic stress. So it's very easy to come down. If you just come out of a class to come down, you're, just, you're letting loose. So you just want to come down and have fun. And I get that. I still want there to be fun. But the deeper fun in everything in life is when we meet the challenge. Okay, so I'm going to drip, drip them that this is fun. Okay, um, you know, as I'm trying to think of the old coach, the old Aussie coach that used to, he's an old friend of yours, Roger Flynn. He used to talk about a bat, a ball, and a wall. But well, that's our game, right? What's not to love? A bat, a ball, and a wall. So we know that yeah. there's fun in playing squash, but they've made this commitment to actually play competitively to represent themselves and their teammates and Harvard, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, yes, you've actually got these expectations. You put on them and we expect them from you, et cetera, et cetera. So the commitment switch, I hope starts not too early, but early enough that they are ready, that we can get into that right mind frame because we only have 90 minutes on this squash court right now. That sounds like a lot of time, but you know, as an ex-pro squash player, you know what? That's once a day, 90 minutes. Some might come down in the morning, but we can't mandate that. So that's <clears throat> that's voluntary. So what are we going to do? How are we going to get out of these 90 minutes? And I've got to stretch them. That's including the warm-up, going over the program, 
um, probably doesn't include the flexibility at the end, but you know what I mean. So you might have a hard 60 to 75 minutes. Well, boy, that better be top quality. <clears throat> and how do we reach top quality? Well, we do it by this drip, drip, drip. So yeah. foundation, character, commitment, switch, and understanding what it means to be a student athlete in this program. And I tell them, if you, if you get it or when you get it, which they do, you will bloody love it. You will love it like nothing else. You know, one of my least favorite things to listen to, another short answer here, by the way, <laughs> is when, when athletes, and you hear it from parents as well, and they talk about the sacrifices. I go, oh, really the sacrifices, you know? And the little Stradivarius has come out, shut up. Oh my God, I can't, just, I can't bear it. It is such an incredible feeling to feel commitment. Feeling mm. commitment, which is, I'm talking about an intrinsic thing, is probably one of the most engaging, if not the most engaging things in life. Absolutely. When you can't wait to get to something, when you are drawn, you cannot bloody help yourself. Don't tell me what your sacrifices are. Yes, you'll have bad days. Yes, you'll go through tough phases. Yes, you're going to get injured. Yes, it's going to be blah, blah, blah. But don't talk, you know, on a regular basis about your sacrifices when you are truly committed to something that you chose and that you love and you cannot wait to get to. Yeah. So it's not really a sacrifice. If no. you're intrinsically driven and drawn to that thing that freaking lights you up and you've got that commitment, you've got that passion for it, there's purpose yeah. behind it, there is, you're not missing out on anything. You would be there whether you got paid to do it or not. It's, 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 it's who you are. It's part of your being. Yeah. And you would, you're choosing to be in that moment to experience the, you said, the highs and the lows, the struggles, the good mm -hmm. times, the bad times. And you, that's what you choose to do. Yeah. You know, if there's if if something that you think you're sacrificing on the back end of this is more important or is going to give you that satisfaction more, well then you'd be already doing that thing. Yeah. You'd be yeah. out with your mates. You'd be out doing something else. You'd be out surfing. You'd be out doing whatever it is that really comes intrinsically. It, it's yeah. There is no sacrifice at that. Point. Yeah. I mean, you only have to think about the 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 children and the young adults that, that actually haven't found that thing in their lives. Mm. And, and, and where is their time going? And how much time is just, you know, uh, is wasted or is unfulfilling? Um, or it's again, going back to the term I said just now, is got this get through mentality, just got to get through this, get through, check this box, check that box and move on. You know, but it's my <laughs> box checking your resume, or whatever it may be so yeah it's uh it's a commitment true commitment is just is, is the greatest thing of all greatest thing of yeah all. do you think that that true commitment comes from is it a, uh, a conscious thing or is it just something you show up with going Fuck, i want to be here i want to be here in this moment right now and i'm and i'm naturally going to give give it my all or is this a, I, a conscious thing I, that, that young people have to work towards um yeah. Or is it a combination? Some people have it. Some people have worked towards it and gain it. Or is it? 
I think it can come to people in different ways. So in myself, you know, <laughs> I think back, uh, back <clears throat> and not to make the conversation any way about my history, but I did not want to be a coach. Uh, no way was I interested in coaching. <clears throat> but when I realized that, uh, you know, my interest was getting peaked, I, I made a decision that I, was, I wanted to be the best coach I could be. And then it was just amazing how excited I got. Uh, about things but you know you can you know kids and this is why teachers uh, are maybe the second most important people on the planet <clears throat> you know teachers and i'm putting coaches in that bracket can create such an excitement for for a young person uh, and, and again it's not to do with being at the elite level it's not to do with that it's just a kid getting excited um <clears throat> And, and they're attracted or drawn to something, however they're just, so when you think of squash, the first thing that draws kids to squash is, you know, the Roger Flynn bat, ball and wall, and is the instant rally. It's the instant race, like, oh, oh, oh you love it. <clears throat> so, um, you know, you take someone out sailing and it could be just like the waves coming over the top or the sound of the wind on the sail or whatever it is. <clears throat> so you can get excited. And then when they learn something, you take someone sailing, you teach them, how to helm the boat, how to steer the boat. <clears throat> you teach someone to uh, hit the ball a little bit better or a good player to hit the ball and produce that beautiful sound in the ball. I remember as a kid, the first time seeing someone, to me when I was a kid, any player that could hit the ball consecutively off the back wall in the back left corner and make that pop sound was an elite player. That was my definition of an elite player <clears throat> and probably till I was about probably 12, 14 years old. They had to be elite to be able to do that. So, you know, the teachers, the coaches that can impart something uh, into someone. So, so yeah, it, it isn't, it isn't, you can say it's intrinsic, but we, we teachers have such a responsibility and to make sure that we do not look at the top of the pyramid. I can't remember the bloke's name, but you should look this up after there was a, uh, a TED talk by, um, and I should remember his bloody name, my mum will kill me, but the name of the TED talk was, um, the title of his TED talk was Shining Eyes. If you've never seen it, look it up. Your listeners should look okay. it up. It is a mind blower and it is beautiful. It's, it's a musician, so he's a, he's a conductor. I think he might've been a composer and his name's coming to me. <clears throat> um, and he, it, it was absolutely a phenomenal thing and he's talking on a different level about this very 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 thing you know this week only this week so i'm working with the, one of these first years Benny hoffman she's just started at harvard she hits a good ball but she's not quite hitting it how i felt she could and how she felt she could and in the last three days she's learned something about her swing and yesterday she turns to me, she says, I've never hit the ball like that before. She got so excited. Now, what does that do to you as a, as a teacher, as a coach? Well, you get excited back. You know, yeah. we, we had to reel them in. We had to reel them in. Um, and, and they're all to a degree. As I said, there's only five of them. And they're all to a degree. Actually, they bought in. They're going through this thing. So it's very exciting for them. They give energy back to us. But, you know, where does it come from? all sorts of places. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it, is, it is a magical moment when you get that energy between 
yeah. as a coach, player, you know, leader to sort of somebody or someone you're mentoring. And those, those little breakthrough moments happen. It's pretty magical. And it's kind of the, at the center of why we do what we do. And uh, right. that's pretty cool. So, so let's talk um, a little bit about your coaching journey in terms of, you know, when I met you, you were working with um, a lot of the top Canadian players, Jonathan Power, Graham Riding, Chia Razik. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up living in Toronto for 12 years and being around those guys quite a lot who are all phenomenal guys and, yeah. and great fun to be around. So how did it come about to work with Jonathan and that crew? And let's talk about some of the differences of working with the pros in that time and the mindset and the attitudes yeah. versus the college athletes that you're working with. Um, well, remember in that crew, by the way, that what was interesting and it, it's interesting that, you know, so the, the job here is you're, you're a head coach. Some programs split up their teams but here at Harvard, you're the head coach of the men's and the women's team. <clears throat> and I say that because in Toronto, they didn't reach the same international rankings, but there was also that very strong group of young women. You know, there was Tara Mullins, Margot Green, probably leaving a few names out there. But the difference there with, um, with that group is that the... Um, the commitment is 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 deeper. Um, uh, it's already there. There's an expectation on it, and because they're full time, you know, and they're older. I mean, when I first started working with them, you know, Graham and Shahir were children. You know, Graham and his brother Pat, and they were children. So that was different. That was a different part of the story. <clears throat> but when you're dealing with them with young adults. They don't have the outside stresses. They still have stress because, you know, in our little sport, there were financial stress and all sorts of things. And they're traveling around the world trying to make their way. Um, but you, they didn't have the academic <clears throat> stresses, didn't have time constraints and so on. So it's a different type and a different level of commitment. And, and what it assumes from the coach's perspective <clears throat> is that it's really around the word expectation. It, it's a given. What I expect from them was a given um, and, and possibly vice versa. It was just pretty straightforward. When I came down here, uh, I mean, talk about a, a, a fish out in what I remember saying to my boss after the first year, you might laugh at this. He said, he said, um, he said, how's your first year going? And uh, I said, um, I think you hired the wrong person. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, what makes you say that? I said, well, I said, well, I think I took the wrong job. And what I hadn't got was this facet we spoke to a little while ago, which was to do with character. So here I was, I turn up, I've had, you know, I've had coaching success. I've had a good program up in Toronto. I've really enjoyed it. Good juniors. Good adults, very, you know, from a coach's perspective, very satisfying, loved my, my, my job, absolutely love Toronto, love Canada, love my job, never looking for a college job, come down here, somehow end up here, but didn't really feel it on the inside. Come down, I go, oh, geez. So here I'm now dealing with 
what can only be described as a lesser commitment, committed student athletes, but not what I was used to. Mm. There was some adjustment there. <clears throat> and, you know, different kids from different backgrounds, good kids, nothing bad, but just wasn't gelling the same way. So my boss turned around. So I told him I was actually going to have my notice in. It was a three-year contract. So I'm going to have my notice in because I, I just don't think this is for me. And, and he'd... At the end of three years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was, this was after the first year. I said, in one year's time, I'm going to have my notice in. And he goes, um, well, you can do something about it, you know. You can, uh, you can affect and influence the program and you can build it and make it into what you want. Anyway, he'd, one of the best conversations I had... And he turned it on me. This is the athletic director, Tim, uh, Tim Wheaton. And he turned it on me and maybe looked more at myself rather than me looking at the program and the student athletes there. The best thing that ever happened, I'll be honest with you. And I had to, I had to really go back and look at <clears throat> what we were doing on the program from a mental point of view and what, you know, what mental program there was and what, what, how are you going to change that? And so we brought in we brought in this character component and things didn't, didn't happen overnight. It took two to four years, maybe three to five, but we changed the program from the basis and these things that we talked about earlier, um, building this foundation. And, and of course, recruiting was a big component of that. So e even today when we're recruiting, everyone thinks you're looking for the best squash player it's a given they have to have the requisite academics by the way so for a harbor they, if they don't cross the academic bar we can't recruit so that's the first thing we look for but what i learned it took me a few years but what i, I learned was that i was not just looking for the best squash player i was looking for young men and women of good character that absolutely loved the sport just wanted to bloody play and learn and listen and would embrace the academic and the athletic <clears throat> and, and and have this sense of of greater purpose so through a number of things it changed but is it different from being dealing with pros and full-time yes it's massively that said that said do i think that now 10 years into my job i would be a more effective coach uh, if I was dealing with pros, yes, I do. Do I think <clears throat> that um, some of the kids that, that graduated in the early years, uh, Ali Farag included, um, who I still keep in touch with, um, it, does, the, does the program evolve? The program is forever evolving. Forever, we pull it apart after every season. I always say, don't touch this baby, leave it. It's firing on all cylinders. It's beautiful, it's beautiful. <laughs> And at the end of the season, over a, over a pint of the black stuff, we pull the bloody thing apart. We do our surveys with our teams individually, collectively, and then we go to work. And we don't strip it apart because it's, 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 it's going pretty good. But we, we're very self-critical. And then we do our little pieces and we try and make it better. I mean, through COVID, how funny is this? Some things have happened during COVID and Hamid was just saying to me, he said, you know, I said, we've got to take this model. And even when we go back to normal, we've got to use the model that we're experiencing now for every year going forwards. And he's right. We will not, our program will evolve because of COVID. Well, we never saw that coming. Never. No. Yeah. Can you, anyway. can you, um, 
So can you just elaborate a little bit on that? So what did come out of COVID? What what shifted and what are those things that you're going to build the program around moving forward, like the, the unforeseen uh, happy well, accidents, I guess? Yeah, no, this, this, this absolutely was a happy accident. And uh, so here we are. We've got five athletes. We've actually only got the fifth one this week. So we had four <clears throat> for a number of weeks. And um, these are the first years. And normally what would happen, they would come to Harvard last week, August, first week, September, <clears throat> and they are adopted by the captains and the upperclassmen. And they follow them around like sheep, good sheep, <clears throat> and they basically take care of them. We, the coaches, get to know them slowly over time. But they're, you know, initially they are influenced by the, the, the students in already in the program we get to know them much uh, over a much longer period of time and what's happened here during covid it's accelerated unbelievably like i can in one session we get to know them in ways where i feel one session would be like two weeks worth of being just because there's so many student athletes <clears throat> and when you're out of season you can't because of rules you can't spend as much time with them even though you might meet with them one-on-one, -on -one. but here we are, we're in our beautiful squash center. The Muir Center at Harvard is wonderful. And you know, 14 squash courts, <clears throat> all glass back, one all glass court. And, it, it, and, and you know, you can hear a pin drop when we're not playing. So we've got that, so we've got their attention. From their perspective, because it's COVID and they're studying online, they're let out of their rooms <laughs> so they escape to the outside. They come down to the mirror. Now they're with in their little cohort with their group of, of friends and they're with us. We, we've got to know them much more quickly. We've got to know them from a squash point of view, not from their competitiveness. We're looking at their videos, but we've just got to know them as people. We're able to tell them and express what we want from them and how we want them to sort of get involved in the program. So there's what has happened is is we've got to know them better, they've got to know us better, and the buy-in has happened much, much quicker. We're doing stuff I wouldn't have dreamt of in a normal year. It's been wonderful. That's cool, that's really cool. And do you think that um, with that, because there are, because you know, people in general, a lot of people are in isolation, being locked down, that because now when they do come out and they get into that little bubble or that environment where they are around like-minded people, people that are, on a similar mission, experiencing some of the things that there's a deeper connection that's happening because of that. Yeah. 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 yeah I do. Th I, I do think, and I, I, you know, the, the other thing that happens <clears throat> through this is um, you're, you're able to dig deeper individually. They're hanging with each other. I mean, even though they would have hung with each other before, but now it's almost like they're forced. So then this little, cohort and they're really forced to be with each other and i think all around i can't say on every campus across the country but what i'm hearing about and what i'm witnessing is um is just this closeness um that's that, that's ironically gonna help them down the road i mean i'm sure if if they were if they were with us in this conversation, they would probably be rolling the right saying because all they want to do is play, all they want to do is be with their teammates and so on. I'm not saying on the negative side of this that this 
this overrides all the negatives that we're dealing with. But I think this is a this could be this could be a special moment. So I would probably the best way to describe it is a silver lining. So on this on this COVID cloud, this is definitely a silver lining. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's to be said a lot around. I think people are recognizing, I'm definitely recognizing myself the how powerful and impactful human connection is and being around people that are that are, are moving in a similar direction, have similar interests and passions that, you know, that sort of the way it's, it's humanistic need, you know, it's, it's something that we are, we're drawn to. It's that tribal instinct that we have is to be part of a pack and a sense of belonging. So. I just got one, um, more, one more thing to say there as well. I think that, and again, I'm not, I'm not, not a psychologist, but I also think that, you know, so when I do, um, when I do uh, mental programs or confidence programs via Zoom, if I have a small group and we meet a few times, people will start to speak up and they'll contribute. And when there's a big group, it doesn't happen. And so when you think of a big squad of players, <clears throat> here they are, these, these young people, I think, are getting to know each other individually more, individually more intimately. So there's less, perhaps, perhaps, it's a question, perhaps less superficial conversations. Maybe these relationships are becoming more authentic. Maybe they can be their authentic selves more. And it brings this closeness. And, and, yeah. and, the, fact, and the fact that we are in this together. You know, yeah. our little, we're in our little bubble. I know we're in a little bubble. I get that. But we're in this together. Before yeah. we go on, before we go on, you remember I told you about shining eyes? Yeah. Okay. Benjamin Zander. There you go. Benjamin Zander. I will, I will put that in the... Yeah, I'll, yeah, um, I'll, I'll put that in the uh, show notes and uh, and the link for people that are listening. So, and I'll definitely check it out myself for sure. Right. But yeah, I think um, yeah, the silver lining in all of this is potentially that how powerful connection is and that vulnerability in it because we're all kind of struggling. We're all kind of have our own way of dealing with things, and and we're all trying to navigate this new existence in a way that yeah. it, it just has shown us how vulnerable we are as people and how easily things can turn and affect us and that we need to value these moments. And going back to what you said earlier, experience this now. Yeah. Like what are we, what are we experiencing this moment? And if you can get those people in that present moment, experiencing and open up and being that vulnerable and leaning into that, the courage that's required to sort of open up about it and yeah. go, then, then I feel like you can really build yeah, um, definitely enhance the connection and speed up that process of the buy-in as you talk about and the connection between teammates. Um, so so if, it, if you're harnessing it, if you're aware of it and you're able to harness that, I feel like you can really, really, really take that program or take your environment, take even your workplace environment um, up to a whole new level where you do have people showing up and they're really genuinely excited to see the people they're with, they have a deep understanding of what drives them, what what triggers them, what fears they have, and uh, that can be really powerful. So, so yeah, that's that's really cool to hear that. That's what you guys are taking out of this, and what you're going to lean lean on a bit more heavily, regardless of the future environment that is provided with us. Yeah, for sure. So that's, that's super cool. Um, <clears throat> so just let's get off squash for a minute, because mm -hmm. I know you're an avid kite. Kiteboard 
kite boarder, kite surfer. What do you call it? The same thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you have been ever since I've known you for. Damn, I think I've known you for what, 20, <laughs> 25 years, 26, yeah. 27 years. Yeah. Um, and you still look the same, by the way. Yeah. As yeah. It's the lighting. I've got this special. <laughs> you can't. As a, I can't remember which movie it was. I think it was the movie Arthur. You can't always rely on this light. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, and uh, so yeah. So ever since I've known you, you've always there's there's always been something you, you've said. And like, if the wind's blowing. I'm I'm gone. All right, but the wind's blowing. I ain't on the squash court. This is along those lines, and it, and that always uh, that's always stuck with me. By the way, and and I think I understand that today more so than ever. The need to have that other thing, and for me, playing squash, it was music. You know, I I, I took my guitar with me. I travelled and played, sat in the hotel rooms and wrote songs and sang and played and did. That was my outlet. The thing that sort of gave me that joy and that what I call flow away from my sort of mainstream of com competitiveness and things like that. So, so how did you, how did, how did one, how does one get into kite surfing? Like how do you just decide, you know what, I'm going to launch a kite into the air. I'm going to stand on a board and strap it to my feet. I'm going to fly around the air like a maniac and I'm going to love that. Like, how do you, how did you get into that? And what does it do for you? And, and still to today, even when I spoke to you, you said, you spent five days in a row out in the water. <laughs> yeah. so, so tell me about what this does for you. Um, well, I, I simply got into it because I, I grew up, you know, um, uh, I grew up sailing <clears throat> as a boy, loved sailing, always loved it. Didn't really want to, I, I, I did, I, you know, I did race, I was in some regattas, but it, it wasn't so much that, it was just the thrill of being outside. And I always loved, always loved the ocean, being on it, being on the water, in the water, whatever. Um, and then uh, windsurfing came along <clears throat> and my brothers were big into windsurfing. I took up windsurfing, <clears throat> got hooked on windsurfing. Squash was still, you know, <clears throat> still going to make a living there, but I did the windsurfing. And then a buddy of mine, <laughs> I'll never forget it, came back from the Caribbean and uh, was trying to, was describing to me this, um, this incident he had with a guy on a small board and a big kite in the air and they were on a collision course. And he was describing how they were sailing towards each other. He didn't know which way to go because the kite border was actually mirroring him. So he couldn't avoid him. And I said, what happened? And he said, he went over the top. I said, what do you mean he went over the top? He said he left the water and went over my head and landed on the other side and kept sailing. I went, holy crap. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this was right the first, second year when it came out. Anyway, I went, I bought a kite and that was it, you know, and I would just kiteboard on light wind days, but eventually that was it. I was hook, line and sinkered. And um, so th there's something about, uh, the, the biggest attention getter in kiteboarding um, is that when you first launch a kite, your adrenaline goes through the roof and it feels, which is partly true, that the energy in this kite is greater than your body weight or that your strength can deal with. And it's actually quite scary. When you first start, it's quite scary. <clears throat> yeah. So 
it's an it's an immediate attention getter. And in the early days of kiteboarding, boy, the, the, the kites were crap. The D power, uh, they used to call them kite mares. <clears throat> the accidents were known as kite mares. They were all over the place. Yeah. Every kiteboarder has his stories of kite mares. That would be for another day for you and me, but I've got some hysterical kite mares to share with you over <laughs> a <clears throat> So, so you, you know, you, you, you learn to fly the kite, you learn to kite, and because it's unnerving, you are at, I, I, I've never done anything where I have had this level of concentration. It was just completely and utterly focused um, like never before. <clears throat> now, after a while, you know, weeks, months, <clears throat> couple of years, you're kiteboarding and you can stay in what we would call regular kiteboarding mode, which is just going back and forth. We call that cutting the grass. <clears throat> so you can go and cut the grass when you kiteboard. But of course, like every sport, there's always that next level around the corner. Yeah. If you love to challenge yourself and I, there was always stuff I wanted to learn and still is to this day. I've still got three, four, five things on my list. I go down that I'm learning to do today. <laughs> and so <clears throat> when you're learning new stuff, you stay in the same thing. So between learning those skills, you might be on cruise control. You might be partially on autopilot. But if you're down there to challenge yourself because you want to do something that this guy that you kiteboard every couple of weeks, you see him and he's doing this great trick or you're looking online <clears throat> and you want to do whatever the trick is you want to do, the maneuver that you want to perform <clears throat> with your kite and your board or in the waves or, or whatever, you have to practice this. <clears throat> so the same thing as competing at squash is <clears throat> it's not competing against another person. There's not a judge. <clears throat> There's not an outcome, a result beyond the outcome and result that you feel inside. So when, um, so I've recently just learned a new new maneuver. It's actually taken me about two years, right? Which is way longer than it should have done. But the satisfaction of executing this really what looks like a benign and, and um, easy maneuver um, is deeply, deeply satisfying. And that's what makes my day. So I'm getting this, and, and I would say that when you talk about flow and zone, this level of focus <clears throat> uh, is, it, well, it, it, it's a magical, it's a magical place to be. But remember, I'm not under the stress, so it is not public. There might be people watching, but they're not bloody well watching me if there's a bunch of kite boys, they're watching, watching it doesn't matter you're not aware of an audience there's no one being judged so you do not have or i refer to the burden and the stress of being judged evaluated um and, and marked <clears throat> which adds to a different type and level of thought process so when i'm on my kiteboard i'm not completely free because I'm focused on the maneuver, on the challenge, <clears throat> but I am free of all other thoughts. In the moment, there is no room for anything else. So two of my favorite Netflix movies, I love them both, um, is a Free Solo. Awesome. And 
and Dawn Wall. Yeah. Um, and what I, I mean, I love about him because I got, so, I'm in such awe because I'm actually scared of heights. So how about that? So that <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> What I'm getting is, is when I think about no room, there's no spare space in your head. And now they might be balanced on a ledge and take a breather and get some chalk, take a drink, and they might look around. But to be honest, there's very little spare space. I don't think there's any space about what's going on. They are... When I talk about being immersed, I talk about being immersed under stress. They're immersed. There's no freedom. They are absolutely balanced uh, at the end of a needle. <laughs> and and in dorm wall, I think the guys there. I don't know how many days they're on the dorm wall, but it's you know whatever it is. It's in free solo. It's hours at a time on dorm wall. It was days or bloody weeks. It's uh, it's amazing. So. What do I enjoy? I love the water. I love sailing. I love kiteboarding. But this really, uh, how I've just described it, is, is the feeling that I get out of that. Put a smile on yeah, the face. It, no, look, mate, the energy that you have when you, when you describe that. So you, know, you and I have had a couple of conversations offline about what is flow and, and the terminology. And, and, and we've sort of you know, your your experience or your understanding of it and the way you would describe it and so on and those things would be slightly different. And even when I first spoke to you about doing this uh, flowcast, you, you sent me a text message going, I think we should have a conversation first because I'm not sure I agree with everything. <laughs> Which I was like, awesome, let's, let's talk about that. But I'm going to have to send you some literature because what you just described to me is... Yeah. flow in essence of, of the way science is, is describing it and the way it's produced. And, and I love what you said. The moment that kite goes up in the air that, where you realise that the, you are not strong enough, potentially not strong enough to control this thing and that fear hits you and that, that scary moment, that triggers that neurochemistry of neuropinephrine goes into your system, which is a focusing chemical. It triggers yeah. fear and things. It's like, holy shit, there is a tiger behind me. Yeah. And and now there's no space in my head to think about. But I have to be home for dinner at six pm. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's traffic, so I've got to leave soon. That neuroprotective system kicks in, and that focusing chemical dials you in onto that one thing to, right. to keep you alive. So if you're flying up in the air and that feeling hits you, that neuroprotective kicks into your system. It's a focusing chemical for your brain to go. I need to pay attention. Right. Yeah. And then on the flip side, that once you sort of realize that you're not dying yeah. and you're, you're surviving and you've got a little bit of sense of control, flow trigger, then the dopamine kicks in, which is your reward chemical, your feel-good chemical. Holy shit, I just did that. How good is this? I'm flying through the air with a, with a, with a piece of board strapped to my feet with a, with a wetsuit on. How cool is this? Yeah. And so that dopamine mixed with that norepinephrine, the cortisol, so the six sort of uh, you know, neurochemicals that show up in, in a state of flow, um, kind of they're the main two, that, two or three cortisol, norepinephrine, and your dopamine. Those things are focusing chemicals. They're going to basically dial you into that moment to experience that thing. And so there's no other room. And once you get there, the prefrontal cortex, which is your executive functioning side of things 
starts to go offline. So it sort of switches off. So now you're not sort of logically thinking, yeah, but if I go a bit higher, but you're sort of just your decision making and your pattern recognition just starts to kick in subconsciously almost, unconsciously, which is where you start to feel like things sort of in, just sort of flow into one thing after another. So so I'm gonna send you some uh, some stuff to read around that to sort of connect those dots a little bit because I think you'll find it fascinating, but it's the exact way it's sort of the way you described it was almost like the peripheral of a of a scientific kind of yeah. um, evaluation or description of it, how it works from a neurochemical neurobiological standpoint. And it's that's what fascinates me about it is that these things can be triggered by putting yourself in a stressful environment. And you talked about this a little bit earlier, and we've had a conversation before about this um, stress, guided stress situations. I'm going to put you under stress to learn so I can challenge you a little bit and teach you how to deal with that stress. And that stress is important because it also brings that focusing chemical, which then heightens your learning abilities as well. So putting people under stress is essential for um, uh, progression. Because without that stress, there's no, I can't see how you progress. It's too comfortable. There's, there's no, there's nothing to learn. There's no, there's no advancement there. So, uh, and you, you describe it, you just learned this new trick that was challenging. It took you two years to, to do it, but you kept going back and back. And then the, the satisfaction on the back end of that was just euphoric, almost like it was, it's so satisfying. So it's one of the most satisfying things in life. And that is kind of like the, the ultimate definition of, what flow is about is like those moments of peak experiences where you've challenged yourself and gone to another level and experienced what that level feels like. They're the moments of satisfaction that I feel lead to more happiness in life. Overall, the more satisfying moments you, you exist in or you experience, the more the happier you become because on the back end of those moments, you probably lit up the day up. Walking around like, just mastered this. I'm the king. I'm the king, man. Thank you for dialing into the Flowcast. I hope you took away some valuable insights to make your challenges and journey a little more epic. If you'd like to learn more about how we can help you find more flow and upskill your vision and mindset, check out our flow programs at www.inspiredpeakperformance.com. Thanks again for sharing your valuable time with us and please feel free to share and subscribe to the Flowcast. Until next time, get out there, find your flow and create your own inspired peak performances daily.